Good morning. Good to see you this morning. If you're a first-time guest, I just want to say again, welcome uh, to you. My name is Daniel, and we have been in a series over the last couple weeks titled Love Thy Neighbor. Uh, And our hope in in doing this series is that God would uh, awaken or reawaken us uh, to the mission that he's called us to as his people, and particularly in this church We started the series by looking at the parable, I think, for understanding love for neighbor, the parable of the good Samaritan and and the call that we have to love. And then we looked at the call to love our neighbor by hospitality. And then last week, Timothy preached on loving neighbor and evangelism. And this morning, I'm going to be preaching on loving neighbor by loving the marginalized, loving the oppressed, the poor. Now, I need to say something in, in kind of looking back and as we continue to move forward in this series. But being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian who's living on God's mission is more than just being hospitable. It's more than just evangelism. And this morning, it's more than just loving the poor. But I hope you hear us saying it's not less than these things. And this is especially true for loving the poor. Uh, There is more to the Christian life than loving the poor, but make no mistake about it, it's not less than. The Bible is very clear that this is a mark of a Christian. You know, I think we all know we're in a heated political season right now. Uh, And this past week, we had the third Super Tuesday. Uh, It's a season full of speeches, victory speeches, uh, kind of withdrawing from the race speeches, speeches casting vision for what the candidate promises they will do if elected president. And much of America tunes in to listen to the speeches, to learn about the candidate, what they are promising, and and perhaps, if it's a good debate, what their policies might be. Uh, I can remember running for school officer, uh, which is not like running for president, but it felt like it. Uh, And the pressure I had in making my first speech, it was the opportunity I had as a middle schooler to lay before everyone this is who I am, and, and this is what I'm about, and this is why you should vote for me. Speeches are powerful. I mean, think, think of just two speeches. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream. Now, I'm not sure any of the political speeches we've heard are near those two speeches, or the speech I made was nowhere near uh, those, but this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' first speech. Rather, it's his first sermon. And it's short and it's simple, but I believe it reveals much about who God is and what our God is about. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, and then Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. So I'm going to ask you to stand as I read God's word to us this morning. This is Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. And Jesus, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Galatians 2, verse 10. 
This is Paul writing and the apostles affirming Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, and they say this, only they, the, the apostles, asked us, Paul, to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning, that this morning you would give us ears to hear, that our minds would be illumined, that our hearts would be soft, and that your spirit would speak into our spirit, that you would move in this place and empower to change us, to transform us. Lord, would you speak, would you remove me, and would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can have a seat. So Jesus, here in Luke 4, begins his earthly ministry after being in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, stands up to read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, to deliver his first speech, to give his first sermon. This is Jesus' big moment. This is the time that Jesus can make a splash in his hometown. He can let everyone in on his agenda. And then he reads Isaiah 61. I'm going to read it again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He he reads it, says today the scripture has been fulfilled, and then he sits down. Short, and simple. This morning, I want us to look at three things, three questions. Why did Jesus come? Who did Jesus come for? And how did Jesus come? So let's look first at why did Jesus come? If I I were to sit down with you, perhaps for a cup of coffee, and I were to ask you that question, why why did Jesus come? I think many of you might respond, he he came to die for sin. And I think that's true. He did. He, He came to die for sin. I don't know how many of you would respond with Luke chapter 4. Jesus came to to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus came to love the weak, to love the outsider, the marginalized, the poor. God loves the weak. The Bible is very clear in this regard. At least 200 places in the Old Testament The poor are discussed. Listen to some of the places where Scripture speaks about loving the poor or the marginalized. So when God gave the law to Moses, uh, he was constructing, uh, for your kind of some history, he was constructing a believing community in which social righteousness was as required as personal righteousness and morality. And so here are some Scriptures. The individual Israelites were forbidden to harvest all their produce so that the poor could glean from their fields for free. Exodus chapter 23. The Israelites were told to give to the poor until the need was gone. Deuteronomy 15. The priest gave to the poor out of the tithes to God. Deuteronomy 14. God's law required that the poor be given more than just a handout. When a slave was freed from debt, he was not to leave empty-handed. 
but was to be given grain or livestock so that he could become economically self-sufficient. Deuteronomy 15. Materialism and ignoring the plight of the poor are sins as repugnant as adultery. Amos chapter 2. In Israel, every seventh year was a year in which all debts were to be forgiven. Release and freedom from all debt. It is impossible to read the Bible and not see that it is the duty of God's people to love and care for the poor. And I think it's important for us to define poor. What what do I mean when I say poor? What does the Bible mean when it says poor? Tim Keller was helpful to me here. He says when uh, the Bible talks about the poor, it means two things. It's an economic condition and it's a social condition. It's an economic condition that people have little to no resources that the world values, whether that be money, talents, or skills. Economic poverty. Now, the statistics of American poverty in terms of economics are astonishing. We are the richest nation on the earth, and 15% of us fall below the federal poverty standard. Our country's economic poverty, many of you know this, is skewed sharply by race. Almost 30% of African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans are poor. It's also skewed by age. 22% of American children live below the poverty line. And 35% of our children of color live below the poverty line. Now, in light of all that, there are increasing poor in our, in our country. And these aren't poor that are poor because we judge and think they're irresponsible. There's actually a growing blue-collar poor working but underemployed. There, there's a growing number of poor because of a, of a new immigrant population moving into our country. There's a, a growing number of poor because of broken families or because they're elderly or they're mentally sick or they're disabled or they're prisoners kind of coming back in, transitioning back in to society. Let me give you a a local statistic. 63% of children living in East Durham, which is here east, 63% of children in East Durham are living in economic poverty. That's staggering. But poverty is not just economic. It's also social. One of the Hebrew words for poor can be translated oppressed. Listen to Proverbs 13, verse 23. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it's swept away through injustice. Injustice sweeps it away. Poverty is also being oppressed in the sense that if you do have something, it can be taken away from you. It's also known as exploitation. And it's social in power and in its construct. This is when people have no power or they have no opportunity. That could be for business or or even the right to vote. And so the poor in this regard are those who are socially marginalized, the weak, the oppressed. Let me give you just a little example of social oppression. I could give many, but here's one. I was reading the cover of the Durham News on Wednesday. And in Durham, I'm going to give you some numbers. Hope I don't lose you here. In Durham, there are 27,000 low-income households that spend 30% of their income on housing. And of those 15,000, of the 27,000, they spend 50% on housing. And for the 12,000 who are extremely low-income households, for every 100, 100 renter households earning less than 30%, 
there are only 38 units affordable to them. Do you follow that? So let me, let me just break that down real, real simply. This is very simple. Jobs impact income. Income impacts housing. And yet without showing some form of housing and stability, it's hard to get a job. It's a vicious cycle of systemic and social oppression. And so we need to give more than just financial handouts. We've got to create jobs and we have to create more affordable housing options. So the Lord Jesus showed up on the first day of his ministry to preach good news to the poor. Jesus says, I'm the one who's here to show mercy to the poor, but not just mercy. I'm here to extend justice where there is oppression and injustice. There is more to following Christ than liberation and social justice. But it's not less than that, Christ Central Church. The command to love neighbor is very clear in the Bible that it's a command to love the marginalized, the economically poor and socially oppressed. Again, we're, we're in a politically hot climate. The politically left proclaim big government and government intervention can solve all of these issues. And the politically right proclaim it's individual choice and big business that can solve all of these issues. And I'm here to tell you that I think it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the vehicle that's been called to solve many of these issues. We say there's a racial problem or there's a class problem, and there is, but church, it's our problem. We've been called to be our brother's keeper. Galatians 2.10, remember the poor. Now, I know, even as I'm talking, there's a lot of guilt starting to settle in on many of you. And I know many of you get excited when our church starts talking about the poor. But I also know that guilt enslaves many of you and drives you because guilt can drive and enslave me. So I could continue to overwhelm you with statistics about the poverty in Durham. But I don't think that would produce what I think is the heart of Luke chapter 4. A a sustainable redemption and rescue plan for the poor. So I want us to look at who did Jesus come for secondly. Who did Jesus come for? Now this is not intended to be a redundant question. (laughs) Jesus came for the poor. He came for the weak. He came for the oppressed. If you were here last week, Dan Williams shared his story. And and he said what many of us who have gone on any type of mission trip has said. I was ministered to more than the people uh, I was ministering to. They ministered to me more than I ministered to them. I can remember going on a mission trip to Malawi, Africa. I was there for one day and I was awestruck as we went to an orphanage in Malawi, how the older children cared for the younger children, how they held their hands and they led them, led them into the food lines, let them eat first. And they did this with incredible, huge, radiant smiles love for each other. It's incredible for me to learn and to be ministered to by this orphanage. Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian theologian, professor at Yale Divinity, he, he wrote about his experience visiting the birth mother and sister of the son that he adopted, his son Nathaniel. And he was taking his adopted son Nathaniel back to meet the birth mother and his sister. Now this is fairly long. This morning I'm going to read two fairly long kind of pieces. So you stick with me here. This is fairly long from Miroslav Wolf on his experience taking his adopted son back to the, the birth mother and sister. 
He writes this, The first thing I saw was a tear, a huge, unforgettable tear in the big brown eye of a 10-year-old girl. Then I saw tears in her mother's eyes. And in all these tears, just enough joy was mixed with pain to underscore that pain's severity. Their joy at seeing him, their three-month-old brother and son, and their intense pain that it was the first time they'd seen him since he was just two days old when they'd kissed him goodbye. I sensed in those tears the ache that he, flesh of their flesh, was being brought to them for a brief visit by two strangers who were now his parents. And the affliction of knowing that the joy of loving him as a mother and sister would never be theirs. The joy and pain of those tears, he writes, led me to repentance of sorts. My image of mothers who put their children for adoption, though not as bad as that of fathers involved, was not exactly positive either. I could not shake the feeling that there was something deficient in such an act. To give one child to another, it had seemed to me, was to fail in the most proper duty of a parent, to love no matter what. It is hard to know that you have a child in the world world far away from you, wrote Nathaniel's birth mother in her first letter to us, Wolf writes. It's hard because love passionately desires the presence of the beloved. Yet it was that same love that took deliberate and carefully planned steps that would lead to his absence. In a letter she wrote for him to read when he grows up, she told him that her decision to put him up for adoption was made for his own good. I did it for you, she wrote repeatedly, adding, someday you will understand. She loved him, Wolf writes, for his own sake. And therefore she would rather have suffered in his absence if he flourished than have enjoyed his presence if he languished. For a lover... It is more blessed to give than to receive, even when giving pierces the lover's heart. My image of birth mothers has changed. She who does not care quite enough has become she who selflessly gives. When we parted, a smile had replaced the tears on the face of our son's birth mother. Now it was my turn to cry. Back at home, with him in one arm, and an open album she had made for him in the other, I shed tears over the beauty and the tragedy of her love. That's what Wolf learned in his experience. He learned the gospel, and he was ministered to in a way that he thought he was ministering to this birth mother. I'm here to tell you that the poor and the marginalized have so much to teach us, church. And it is easy for us who may have means and have money to look at a poor community, a marginalized community, and judge it. Perhaps we see dirty streets or yards that aren't manicured and we feel superior. But there's one thing true of these communities and neighborhoods that have less, is that they love each other deeply and they share with one another and they look out for one another and there's often more neighborliness going on in poor neighborhoods and poor communities than in the lives and communities we experience. It's extremely telling of our own heart if our immediate reaction to think about the poor is that we think about the others. Those over there and not us. Jesus declared that he came for the poor, the oppressed, the weak, and that includes us. We have to be the ones who know we are weak. And perhaps you have money, and you might be middle, upper class economically, but the Bible rebukes a middle, upper class spirit. 
If you love the poor out of guilt, there will still be an air and smell of superiority. If we think we're the haves and they're the have-nots, if we think we're strong and they are weak, there will still be an air of superiority until we understand and believe that we are weak, that we're oppressed, and that Christ came to set us free. We will never be worshipers. And worshipers who are overwhelmed with God's love towards us is the very thing that will keep us on mission of loving the poor. We will never lay down our lives for our neighbor until we rejoice that Christ laid down his life for us. So God requires the love that cannot be required. Love for the poor is commanded, but it must not be a response to the command. It must be an overflowing generosity as a response to the love of God in which we have received. We will fail to love our neighbor if we look down our noses. But we will love our neighbor when we're worshipers who realize how much we've been given. I've said this before, but I hope all of us realize this morning that everything we have is because God has been gracious to us. Now, your middle upper class spirit wants to resist like mine does. No, 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 no. I've worked for it. I've earned it. No. I mean, you realize you could have been born in Tibet in the 1800s. No one in here chose when they were born or what family we were born into. The Lord gives us all that we have, even your talents and your skills that you've been able to use in life. And you know the one thing that God requires from us to know His rescue and His redemption? The only thing God requires is that we know we bring nothing. God requires bankruptcy. He requires a knowledge and a confession of weakness to be able to sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I've said this before, and some of you are already feeling guilty. Christians should make a ton of money. Christians should make a lot of money. I don't want you to feel guilty if you're here and you have money. Make money, please. But woe to us, woe to us, if we make more money and we continue with a middle and upper class spirit where we can blindly take our children to sporting events and we can live in our safe enclaves and we can go on vacations when we want to go on vacation while 40% of the world struggles to eat. When we understand the gospel towards us, we will have a deep sense that there's something wrong with our world. Even more specific, we will see that there is something wrong here in our city of Durham. Because when we understand the love of Christ that rescues us in our need, we will see those around us in need and will do something about it. Let's look lastly at how Jesus came. How did Jesus come? Luke chapter 4 reveals to us that Jesus, what Jesus came to do and to accomplish. And this Sunday, Palm Sunday, we celebrate the day when Christ entered into Jerusalem. Entered into Jerusalem, headed towards the cross. And if, and if we want to love the poor and the weak, as we understand we are the poor and the weak who are loved by Christ, then we must understand that the way that Christ loved us is that He became poor and weak. I've always loved 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 as a gospel summary. He who was rich became poor 
so that you who were poor might become rich. Jesus the King comes riding into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, stays in a borrowed room, is stripped of all of his clothing, and is hung naked on a cross. Jesus, the creator of everything, entered our neighborhood and was crucified having nothing. He is the suffering servant. He is the poor man who gave up all power and was oppressed economically and socially poor, so that you and I could become eternally rich. And until you can rest and trust in this gospel love towards you, you'll never understand the pattern of the gospel. And more importantly, you, we will never live it out. So do do you need to go, leave here today, and go give all your money away and become poor? No. No. But if you understand the gospel of a king who became a suffering servant, we will be radically generous. Radically generous. I read an article this week, Why I Don't Believe in Grace Anymore. Let me read this. This It's another long piece, but it struck a deep chord with me. Let me read this. This is the article. It's 9 p.m., and I walk in the door, still carrying the burdens of a day at my office. The kids are already in bed, eyelids heavy, but holding out for a good night from daddy. My wife is tired, but smiling and happy to see me. And I don't want any of it. I stomp around, tearing open mail, griping about food that isn't in the fridge, acting like a serious jerk. And in some secret place inside of me, I know it. Somehow this only makes it worse. I wait for the reprisal from my wife, the well-earned reprisal, the angry, I don't deserve this but it isn't forthcoming. Instead, she kisses me on the cheek, says she loves me, goes to bed with the same smile on her face. And I stand by myself in the kitchen, but I have two companions, my bad mood and my wife's grace. And the brilliance of her love quickly becomes clear. Her attack would have only rooted me deeper in my anger. Instead, she has given me acceptance in the midst of my anger, the space to feel it, and experience the fullness of myself. I still feel grumpy, but I discover there's something else there inside of me, and and I want to apologize. So I go to the bedroom, and I tell her I'm sorry, and her response is quick, and her grace is complete. You had a long day. You're allowed to be in a bad mood, and you're a good man. I knew you'd apologize. My wife saw my goodness, even in the midst of my junk. She believed in my light, even when all she could see was darkness. She believed in who I am and who I can be, even while I was being something else. I used to say I believe in grace. I don't say that anymore. Now I say I have known grace. Jesus reads Isaiah 61 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, the the year in which all debts are forgiven. Jesus says, I have come to usher in freedom and grace. And then he preaches the shortest sermon. Today this has been fulfilled, and he sits down. So it's a present reality, not just a future hope, the freedom and the grace that Christ brings. So let me ask you a question. Do you simply say you believe this grace and freedom? Or do you really know it? Do you really know it? Christ Central Church, it is not out of guilt and out of shame that we are called to love our neighbor, the poor, the marginalized, the weak. 
We will love the poor and the weak with great fervor only when we say, not that we just believe in grace, but that we actually know and experience grace. Will you come in your weakness and in your poverty and let Christ love you? Then, when we step out to love our neighbors, we will not only love, but be loved and learn just as much. There will be a reciprocity in the ministry and love that we hope to have and hope to share. I said this to Timothy this past week. I think a little sometimes a fear for me is that we can, as a church, feel good about giving handouts to this city, feeling good about what we do. And we can come here on a Sunday morning and we can have some reflection of diversity economically. We, we can have somewhat of a facade of what I think and what I hope and what I pray God really does in this community. I don't want us to be a facade. I want us to be the real deal. I want us to be a community where, where there's wealth and there's rich and the wealth and those with means are gripped by the love of Christ and are compelled to do something about those in need. And where those who have means, the rich, understand their own poverty, that they are excited to let those who are on the margins love and minister to them. We might live in a world full of winners and losers, haves and haves nots. The kingdom of God, there are only those who have it all by confessing they bring nothing. And we trust in a suffering servant who is a conquering king. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us. Help us, O oh God, in our pride and in our arrogance. And break us. Humble us. And lead us unto your love so that then we might serve. Then we might give with a costly sacrifice because we know all that you have given to us. And Lord, may we not just say we, we know of your grace, but even as we come to this table, Lord, may we really experience it. May we not just say it, may we truly know it deep down in experience. So in your name we pray. Amen.